Welcome to the Innovations Podcast on the Media Scorch Podcast Network. I'm Jason Weedle. Today we have an extended interview with Brian McLaren. If you listen to the Environmentalism Podcast, you heard pieces of this interview. This is the interview in its entirety. Brian has some very important things to say about the way that we as Christians see the environment, see our responsibility to the environment, and just view the earth as a whole. Uh, Please enjoy. We're talking about climate change, talking about the environment, talking about what it means to be caring for our world as Christians and what the Christian's responsibility is. It seems so much that uh, the Christian position, at least in the evangelical world and the conservative world, has been to stay away from issues of, of the environment. Um, in many ways to deny that some of the problems that scientists and others are claiming exist, to deny those issues. Why is that? Well, I think there are a lot of reasons. Let me just give a a few that come to the top of my head. Uh, First, I think Christians, conservative Christians in general, have been off on the wrong foot with science for a long time. You know, they weren't too happy when Galileo proposed that uh, that the Earth went around the sun rather than vice versa, and then they weren't too happy when Charles Darwin suggested that uh, species uh, develop over time, uh, and uh, when uh, scientists talked about the Earth being far older than uh, six thousand years, and so on. So there's been this sort of anti-science attitude among Christians for a whole lot of reasons uh, that that goes way back. I, I just think that's tragic. It's sad. It's time to grow up and, and stop that kind of foolishness. Um, I, I think uh, another reason is that um, uh, the, the conservative Christian community, both in its Catholic and Protestant forms, has been so tightly connected to the right-wing political uh, world, especially the Republican Party. And uh, you know, it's, this is an oversimplification, but w- one way to say it is that the Democratic Party is largely owned by big banks and that the Republican Party is largely owned and funded by big oil and, and fossil fuels. And so, um, you know, there's all kinds of money and political reasons or financial political reasons uh, for uh, people to be loyal to the to, to not bite the hand that feeds them, so to speak. Um, but I also think uh, there are some really insidious theological problems, one of them being this kind of left-behind theology that makes people say, hey, look, Jesus is coming back soon, God's going to burn up the earth, we might as well you know, have all the fun with it, we can. Uh, I, I've had more people say this to me, and more recently than, than a lot of people would believe. Um, uh, and then another is just a, a general disparagement of the earth, that... that um, uh, you know, all that matters is heaven and souls and leaving this. Who cares about this world? It's it's God doesn't really care about it. So why should we? Uh, again, I think those are horrible ideas, but they're deeply embedded and they have a long history. It seems that even if we don't, uh, even if we don't actually use those words that you just did and explain it in that same way, that, like you said, it is embedded somewhere in our worldview. Yeah. Um, I I spoke 
to Anna Jane Joyner for this episode, who is the daughter of Rick Joyner. Yes. Um, and they were, Anna Jane is heavily involved in environmental work, and uh, they were involved in a uh, television program where she basically worked with him in kind of explaining environmental issues. And you could see over the course of, of weeks that they spent actually visiting areas that were devastated by um, environmental problems and that he there, there was still such a struggle for him to accept what is uh, when when you're confronted with it seems maybe to be clear but there is something yeah. that's very often that seems to, to just block us from understanding what, what would you say to the person who has you know maybe grown up in that conservative Christian world yeah um, well, I, I, the first thing I would say is I'm I'm very empathetic because that's my background. I grew up in that world. <laughs> it's funny. I remember being a young boy driving through uh, Florida, where I now live, but then it was just on a vacation. And uh, you know those there, there's a name for them. I forget what they're called, but they're those small oil derricks that um, yeah. that pump oil. Uh, and I'd never seen one before. And there were some in the central area of Florida. And uh, I was sitting in the back seat of this old blue and white Pontiac. I can just picture it like it was today. And my grandfather was sitting beside me. I'm probably now the age he was back then. And I said, Grandpa, what are those things? He explained how an oil derrick worked. I, I remember saying to him, what will happen when we pump all the oil out of the ground? Um, and I could just tell, even at that, you know, I was maybe four or five years old, but I, I remember realizing my grandfather never thought of that before. And he said, well, I'm sure there's enough in there to last us a long time. And I said, yeah, but eventually it'll run out. What will we, what, what will we do then? And he said, well, I'm sure Jesus will come back before then. And uh, that sort of put the question aside. You know, there's, I think for people of an older generation, um, the world was so big, uh, and and it was just this limitless resource. We could never produce enough pollution to uh, toxify it. We could never produce enough uh, carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases to warm up the earth like a blanket. You know, uh, uh, they, it, they just it, the world was so different for them. And I think for people born after the generation when men walked on the moon and took that photograph of the Earth as a, a little ball out in space, I think we have a sense of how limited the, the world is and how vast the universe is, but how tiny this planet is by comparison. So, you know, it's just a different way of seeing the world. And, and a lot of people are, are afraid for two reasons. First, they're afraid um, that God can't handle, uh, you know, a bigger and more complicated world. Um, and it's true, their concept of God might not be able to, but what I would encourage them with is the good news that God is way bigger than their concept of God, and that uh, when their concept of God grows, they'll have even more reason to worship and honor and praise and trust God. Uh, and then the second reason they're afraid, I think, is that they're afraid if they think differently, they'll be kicked out of their church or ostracized or whatever. And all I would say is any organization that is threatens you if you have an honest question or if you think an honest thought, any organization that threatens you is not the kind of organization that deserves your respect and loyalty. Yeah. 
Do you think that 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 idea of never-ending abundance? Do you think that's built into our idea of America? I mean, yeah. I, I think of I think of even uh, two, three, four hundred years ago, and and Europeans coming to this side of the world and seeing America as a place of almost never-ending abundance. You know, I have never thought of that before, but I think you are onto something there. You know, this idea that there was always more land to our west that was vacant and open, that there was always more land. And isn't it interesting? I'm just thinking of uh, the last political season when Sarah Palin and the drill baby drill uh, line was going. And I don't think it's it's an accident that Sarah Palin came from Alaska, the last frontier, you know, mm. which is still a, a resource based economy. Um, you know, we're still people still survive by cutting down more trees and mining out more gold and so on. So, uh, yeah, that's an era in our history. And I wouldn't be surprised if some of this is just a leftover from that era. But the other thing people should realize is that that, uh, you know, it, there are an awful lot of things in our history that, thank God, we have left behind. Um, one sure. of them being the idea that, uh, you know, white people ought to be able to enslave uh, people of color, uh, you know, those kinds of ideas belong in the past and, and not the present. And the same with this idea that uh, that the earth is there for us to exploit. Yeah, and, and just thinking of kind of the history of, of this country, I mean, I find the Dust Bowl to be rather fascinating, mm. uh, but maybe something that we didn't learn a lot from yeah, yeah, <laughs> or yeah. maybe in this period of time that that the idea of just the exploitation of this abundance that we have could actually lead to to man-made prob- environmental problems oh my goodness uh, and, and of course one of the things we're learning is that that uh, that misunderstanding has existed for a long time uh, we can go way back in history and uh, find archaeological evidence of our ancestors over-exploiting a region that uh, made it impossible for them to survive. Mm. Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, One thing that um, seems to be influencing a lot of people around the world is uh, Pope Francis' thoughts about the environment. could you say a little bit about how you see the Pope influencing not just Catholics, but those of us yeah. who are Protestant or not religious? Yeah, well, f- first of all, uh, thank God the Pope spoke up on this because, you know, we've had a long string of really bad news. I just read that October was the hottest October on record, and, you know, our 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 temperatures, uh, we keep breaking records for temperatures, severity of storms, severity of droughts. Uh, and, the, you know, sea level uh, uh, rise, uh, diminishment of uh, Arctic sea ice and so on. I mean, it's it's like we're, we're like a patient who shows up at the doctor and we've just got every symptom in the books. And uh, it's been a long time since we got some some good news on this. And and to think that you, you could say arguably the most influential religious leader on the planet decided to use his political capital and his his bully pulpit, so to speak, to to say to, to to write a letter to every human being on the earth. You know, that's the amazing thing about his encyclical mm-hmm. Laudato Si. He is trying to speak to every human being, whatever their religion, 
and and do in in my mind some phenomenally good Christian theology. If people haven't read the the encyclical, it's it's not that long. It's I think it's beautifully written and it's theologically rich. Um, uh, but but you know here he's inviting us to to take care of the earth uh, as our God given responsibility, partly because that the earth is has inherent value. You know when we read Genesis one that God saw the world and it was good. You know, it doesn't say God saw the world and it had the potential to be uh, capitalized, you know, <laughs> turned into profit. Uh, God saw the world, it could be monetized. No, before there was any money or economy or human beings even, the world itself is good and has value to God. And if we see the world as God's artwork, it's actually an expression of God. It's it's not just a creation of God. We could say it's a manifestation of the character of God. The, the book of Romans chapter 1 uh, tells us that very thing. So that tells us creation should be taken care of seriously, but uh, taken uh, seriously. But then on top of that, we we realize that we're also called to love the poor. And when sea levels rise, uh, rich people can afford to move uh, to the mountains. When droughts strike, rich people can afford to move somewhere else or buy more expensive food. But the poor people are the most vulnerable. And so it's both the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor, Pope Francis said, that need to reach our hearts and, and bring us to a point of repentance and rethinking. Yeah. Hmm. I, I live in an area where there was a, a coal plant that was proposed within the last few years and and. The plan of the company has ended, um, mostly because of restrictions on coal plants that have come about in the last year, or last year and a half, two years. Um, but one thing that we saw, so that was clear to some, but not clear to others, was that um, these companies come into these areas where um, there's not the population or the capacity of the people who live there to object yes. or to stand up against what might be um, toxic to their health. Yes. Uh, and, and even just the, uh, the long-term viability of the community. Yeah. Um, a lot of people just need jobs. Yeah. What about those places where people just need jobs, people just need you know, they, they, I think West Virginia as well, um, or, or coal country where communities are based on, um, on coal. And if we were to say no more coal, they'd be in trouble. Yes. Well, first of all, that, that's a question I've thought about that very thing because it's not enough to just say we have to shut down, uh, dirty energy that's, that's harming, harming all of our health, uh, but especially harming the health of the people who live close, you know, to either mining or refining or whatever. Um, yeah. uh, but then we have to say, well, what about those poor people who lose their jobs? We have a, a moral and ethical responsibility, just as they have a moral and ethical responsibility to not keep making a living at the expense of all the rest of us, then we have a moral and ethical responsibility to help them. It seems to me that's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Um, and um, interestingly, there are uh, people be surprised. Um, uh, there are uh, uh, people who work in the coal industry represent about 0.1% of the U.S. workforce. 
Um, so this number has been going down. Uh, uh, in 1920, uh, about 1.9% of U.S. workers worked in coal mining. Uh, but uh, so, so the, the percentage has been going down. Um, uh, but for those people, that's their only job. And so uh, what that means is we have to help people uh, bring new jobs to those areas. Here's, this is what just makes me so angry. This is where political leaders, instead of taking money from the coal industry uh, and, and becoming in some ways the puppets of whether it's coal or oil or, or, uh, or uh, tar sands or, uh, or even fracking, what po- politicians should be doing instead of taking an easy buck um, from from lobbyists, they should have a moral responsibility to say, we have to do the hard work of attracting new and better jobs to our area. And look, West Virginia will be better off if there is another industry that's employing their people, one that, you know, yeah. they could be a great clean and uh, clean energy state. Uh, and so all that's to say, this is not an unsolvable problem. Um, the the. Uh, in, in 2014, uh, uh, there were about uh, a, a million and a half people uh, uh, in, in the whole country. Uh, I'm sorry, there were far less than a million and a half because the, the number's been declining since the 1990s when it was a million and a half. So probably a few hundred thousand people nationwide are working in the coal industry that's, you know, those those people, better jobs could come their way, including the jobs of cleaning up the messes that have been left <laughs> mm. uh, by by dirty energy companies. Sorry to ramble on yeah. like that. But I mean, this is an area that, you know, th- people on one side of the debate only care about the energy. People on the other side only care about the employee employees. And I think we've got to sure. care about both. Yeah, yeah. Kind of to wrap up, um, I, I also think of the the person who says, "Well, I only look at the Bible. What does the Bible have to say about this issue? What does the Bible have to say?" Oh my goodness! Well, it has an awful lot to say. We could start in Genesis two, where uh, you know, in that beautiful story of Adam and Eve. Um, uh, uh, the first humans are told to care for and protect uh, the earth. Um, uh, you know, it's unfortunate that the word uh, in Genesis 1 about of have dominion over the earth has been turned into a carte blanche for destruction. The economist Terman Daly says that people have interpreted that to treat the earth as a business and liquidation, you know, to just raid it with no concern. Right. But the word dominion, uh, a better, uh, I think a, a better translation for us would be exert kingly and responsible rule. What, what that means is we, you know, the, a king who exploits the people of his country, we call a dictator and a tyrant. Um, a, a good king would, would be concerned about the well-being of everything under uh, his or her care, his care, and that's certainly the case with the earth. Um, but then we have all the commands. For example, in you know, in the law in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, there's all kinds of rules about caring about fruit trees and caring about the fertility of soil and being sure to let the earth lie fallow. All of that's telling us that it's our responsibility to care for the to, to care for the well-being of the earth. Even if you know, even the most basic command of all, the command to love your neighbor as yourself, which Jesus said is inseparable from the commandment to love God. 
that commandment says, if I love my neighbors myself, well, I want to breathe. I want my neighbor to be able to breathe. You know, I want to be able to drink fresh water. I want my neighbor to be able to drink fresh water. So suddenly all of these concerns become uh, humanized as a way of caring for our neighbor. Uh, one other uh, scripture I would mention, Jesus talked about uh, when, he, when he was telling us not to worry about uh, what we'll eat or what we'll drink. Um, he, he illustrated that point by saying, look, God cares for every wildflower out in the field. God cares for every sparrow. God knows when they fall from the sky. God cares about them. Well, if God cares, uh, we ought to care as well. Je- Jesus, you know, when he was trying to help people see how ridiculous their interpretation of the law was, he said, look, if you had an ox that fell into a, a, a hole on the Sabbath, wouldn't you get it out. You know, in other words, basic compassion for an animal is obviously the right thing to to do. Well, you know, here we are running a civilization that's driving thousands of species into extinction. Uh, And and so basic human compassion would call us to uh, to to act. So, you know, there's in my mind, there is just no biblical case for exploitation of the earth. And it's it's just inherent in all the scriptures us to to care for this beautiful uh god created sacred uh and fragile earth mm, very good thank thank you brian um i think you're inspiring for us and direct us toward hopefully a better a better way to look at the world around us would you mind saying a couple things about uh immigration and Refugees. Oh my! Uh, let, let me just say, uh, I'm I'm just finishing up a book right now called Converting Christianity, and I'm not totally sure what the subtitle is going to be, but it it might be something like helping the world's largest religion become more Christian. Um, and what I've been watching happen in in our country in the last few days, in one level it's understandable, but in another level it's heartbreaking. Um, uh, Watching political leaders demagogue over the issue of the tragedy that happened in France as a way of saying we have no moral obligation to fellow human beings who are fleeing from their, fleeing for their lives, fleeing from tyrannical, dictatorial, uh, depraved regimes of rape, torture, killing. Uh, oh, my gosh. To think. We have no moral responsibility. We'll just wash our hands. We don't care. Uh, I mean, that is so sub-Christian. It's mm. absolutely stunning to me. And the fact that people can gin up Christians with anti-Muslim, anti-Syrian, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, xenophobic uh, uh, passions, it just tells, tells you how thin uh, what we call Christianity is. Uh, in, in the American psyche and in the American soul. Um, uh, look, there are no easy answers to what to do on these refugee problems, but, uh, well, there are easy answers, and the easy answers are immoral. One of the easy answers is, fold your arms, turn your back, and turn away. Um, but, of course, Jesus says, oh, well, okay, do that. You Do that to the least of these, you do it to me. You know, Christians of conscience should not be able to do that sort of thing. Yeah. Your book, uh, Why Did Jesus, Moses, the Buddha, and Muhammad Cross the Road, um, addresses not necessarily our attitude toward other ethnic groups, but other religions. Yeah. 
um, but it it has some parallel um, and and you talk about how to retain a strong Christian identity while still being loving and gracious and accepting um, and it seems to me that that is is still an important issue as we look at well so much of the the refugee issue is also tied up with religion. Yes. Um, yeah. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, well, you, you, you see it when, uh, you know, presidential candidates, I think uh, Jeb Bush and Ted Cruz just in the last few days said, well, we don't want to accept uh, uh, Muslim refugees. We will accept some Christian refugees. Um, again, you know, it's just, I, I guess to some Christians that makes sense, but, they they just must have such a radically different understanding of Jesus than I do, uh, because uh, it, it seems to me the whole message of Jesus was that the people that you're shutting out, the people that you're you're uh, scapegoating and marginalizing, are the very people that Jesus wants to have dinner with, you know, and and uh, that so uh, it, it's it's stunning, uh, and. And, and, you know, there's there, there's an easy way, whether they're political or religious demagogues, there's an easy way to uh, to get power. And that is to create an enemy that we make everybody afraid of and then, you know, promise uh, will protect you from this enemy. It's especially good if the enemy is, uh, you know, if you can exaggerate the danger of the enemy, because then people are even more desperate to trust you for uh, for protection. You know, that's a, a the word for that is protection racket. And that's what organized crime has typically traditionally been about. Um, uh, now, look, there really is a danger. There really are extremists out there. But we're never going to solve the problem of extremism uh, by creating more extremism. <laughs> I, I like what my friend Shane Claiborne says. If you fight fire with fire, you end up with a bigger fire. And Martin Luther King said, you, you, you know, you can't, uh, you, you can't uh, eliminate hate with hate. So uh, this is where the, the message of the gospel is we don't run away from these problems. We don't bury our head in the sand and deny them, but we run toward them with the resources of our faith. And um, so what would that mean uh, to try to deal with the causes of Islamic uh, terrorism? I actually have a blog about that. that part of it came out today. Part will come out uh, tomorrow uh, or, or Friday. But uh, uh, one of the things I think we have to do is pay attention to, to Paul's words in Romans 12 about overcoming evil with good. He says, don't, uh, don't repay evil for evil, overcome evil with good. And the, the best single document I've seen on what that would mean in today's world is by a rabbi named Michael Lerner. He wrote something called the Global Marshall Plan. And I have a link to that on my website. You might be able to find a link for it as well. Sure. Um, but uh, it, it, it creates the kind of picture more than anything else I've ever read that suggests what it would mean to deal with the causes of terrorism uh, and extremism. Uh, and my goodness, the world would be a better place if we start doing that. You, you know, uh, I, I, can I just share a quick anecdote? Absolutely. Uh, I, I can't even remember who this was, but I was with somebody once who was in a meeting with Saddam Hussein when Hussein was still alive. And Saddam Hussein gave like a little after dinner speech. And apparently he was laughing and thought this was very funny. But he said, the secret to my success is I learned that you never just kill your enemy. 
you also kill your enemy and your enemy's brother and your enemy's father and your enemy's cousin. He says, when you kill your enemy and all the people who he loves and who love him, then the next person won't stand up to you because they know that to stand up to you means you will also kill all the people they love because of what they do. You, you see that kind of ruthlessness um, in, in, a, in people's minds. Well, this is the thing that we're going to have to realize, um, that, uh, that if you keep responding to violence with violence, you become more like the people that horrify you. And, uh, and so sooner or later, we have to realize that the way forward is either genocide and violence of the kind that Saddam Hussein talked about, or it's, uh, it's the way of reconciliation that Jesus and Paul and, um, you know, the rest of the apostles talked about. Yeah. Well, thank you for chatting about that. And, um, it's a big issue and it is. Yeah. Well, thank you, Brian. If, um, if people have interest in seeing more of your writing or what you're doing, where can I look? Um, they should go to just my website, brianmclaren.net, and if they go there, they can find a Facebook page and a Twitter feed if they're interested in that sort of thing. All right, fantastic. Thank you very much. We'll talk to you again another time. Thanks for having me, Jason. Keep up the good work. Thanks for listening today. If you're interested in other Media Scorch podcasts, please check them out. Our Where Are We Going podcast features interviews around different topics and ideas. Our Film Matters podcast features discussions from a Christian perspective about movies. Please check those out uh, and rate us on iTunes. My name is Jason Weedle. Thanks for listening. <laughs>